All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. Let me open our time together this morning with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Gracious God, you are so good to us. Truly, the heavens and earth declare your glory, and they sing praises to you. We thank you for how you've revealed yourself to us in the works of your creation that show your power and your might and your glory and your beauty. But even more, we thank you for how you've revealed yourself in your word, that you demonstrate uh, your sovereignty and your love and protection for your people and the truth of your promises that you uh, will be with them in the midst of their trials and difficulties and that you uh, will shepherd them and lead them to your uh, eternal home where we will feast with you in heaven forever and ever. We thank you for how we can anticipate that uh, heavenly future by worshiping you here and now, acknowledging that you are not just the God of the past or the God of the future, but you're the God of the living. And even as we read uh, stories from long ago, that you, O oh God, are the same uh, now and forever and always. So uh, as we see uh, how you act, help us to have the same kind of faith that we see in these men uh, in the book of Daniel. Give us uh, that kind of faith instilled by your Holy Spirit. Teach us this morning, guide us into all truth concerning our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles, we are in Daniel chapter 3. While you're turning there, I'll just recap where we are in the book. So, uh, three weeks ago, uh, we started in, in, we, in Daniel chapter 1, and we saw the circumstances of uh, the Israelites coming to Babylon in the first of the captivities, um, uh, first wave of captives coming to Babylon. And we see how Daniel and his companions determined to be faithful. So even though they were um, put into this uh, situation where they were being indoctrinated into the uh, values of Babylonian society. They pledged to uh, keep themselves pure. And God was faithful to them in the midst of that. And, uh, and we saw how he blessed them with knowledge beyond that of all their peers. Then we spent the last two weeks uh, looking at chapter 2, which is really long, <laughs> um, which focused on this troubling dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had and his confrontation with his, his wise men. And we talked a lot about what this revealed about the character of Nebuchadnezzar, his uh, rashness, his lack of peace within himself, his um, distrust of others, and how that contrasted with Daniel's um, response and his prudence in dealing with the situation and his faith, that in the midst of this difficulty, he and his companions uh, prayed to the Lord <clears throat> and God blessed them again, this time by revealing the matter to Daniel. And last week we saw how Daniel was very clear, um, even in the midst of um, the positioning of a court where people were you know, trying to uh, draw attention to themselves to win, win the king's favor, Daniel was very clear that the, he only could do this because God had chosen to make something known to Nebuchadnezzar. So um, clearly pointing to the sovereignty of God um, as he presented this um, prophecy concerning the future, both the future of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, but the future of all human kingdoms, that despite how glorious and strong they might seem, are but dust uh, compared to the power of God, who is establishing a kingdom that will fill the earth as this, uh, as this prophecy um, foretold and would last forever. In contrast to human kingdoms which rise and fall, the kingdom of God is forever and ever. So, uh, with that, um, 
we'll see some connections uh, growing out of chapter 2 with the uh, image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his vision and the explanation that Daniel gave um, with Nebuchadnezzar's um, actions that drive um, the confrontation of chapter 3. So hear now the word of God from the book of Daniel, chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have, been, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And then whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought those men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the harp, pipe, lyre, trigon, uh, horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually heated. It was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fi burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished 
and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it as we discuss it together this morning. All right, well, let's start with this golden image. So what's King Nebuchadnezzar up to in setting up this enormous golden statue on the plains of Dura? Yeah, Jay. Yeah, so right on the heels of this description of the image of his dream that was made of multiple things, but the head, of, head was gold, and it was declared that the head was his kingdom. Um, so clearly he didn't get the message that <laughs> that kingdom was going to be supplanted by other kingdoms, and that kingdom was inferior to the coming kingdom of God. Instead, I'm... I'm the head of gold. <laughs> and so, so whether or not the dream, like, uh, you know, is the dream of chapter 2 uh, is directly connected to the statue of chapter 3, the way Daniel puts them together, um, again, he's telling us something about who Nebuchadnezzar is. And clearly, um, he, he has definite, uh, um, he, has, has, he has no lack of self-esteem put it that way. <laughs> um, no, no lack of um, self-promotion. Um, good. What else? The, you know, what else is he up to in setting up this golden image? Yeah, Bill. Yeah. He, and, you know, the, the emphasis on total obeisance in this, that he gathers all the um, all the officials um, to come forward, and it like if you see this list, like it, they're all um, unlike some of the prior lists we, where we saw where the emphasis was on wise men and sorcerers and those kinds of um, uh, more religious figures. These are all government titles, we might say. Um, so these are all people in positions of power and authority who could potentially um, be rivals for him. And so he is um, making his superiority and his supremacy to them clear by making them all bow down. Um, and not just them, um, everyone. <laughs> we get that kind of total language in that, that every, um, 
the peoples and nations and languages, they're all going to, everybody is going to fall down um, when the sound is played before this image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Yeah, absolutely. And notice how that, um, uh, I, when I was reading it, I was trying to emphasize, like, because the text emphasizes, like, how often that phrase, it's not just an image, it's the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, says it over and over and over again. Like, so it doesn't tell us what the image is, what it looks like, you know, is it an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself? That's not the point. What the point is, it's Nebuchadnezzar who has set it up, who's established it, who's put it in, you know, this enormous image. And, you know, a cubit is about, you know, the normal, it's from your elbow to your fingertips. So we usually say 18 inches. So this is uh, 60 cubits. That would be 90 feet tall. Um, that's a big image. <laughs> um, the Colossus of Rhodes was 98 feet tall, and that, you know, is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So this is a very substantial image, and as you say, it's out on a plane. Um, so it is going to be the thing that's going to catch everybody's eye on a plane. There's n no obstructed view, no hiding behind uh, a house or something. Um, it, it's this image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up um, and it's this symbol of his power and authority and supremacy. And everybody is, is going to see it, and everybody has to bow down before it. Yeah, Kat. Well, again, we don't know, but he smushes them together. So you like, so we come off one image, and the next thing we see is him constructing a golden image just after he had been told he was the golden head. So. Yeah. So this plain of Dura, um, there's actually a suburb of Baghdad, um, apparently that is still called by the name of Dura. So, um, so yeah, so it, it would have been basically, uh, you know, on one of the approaches to the city. Um, Absolutely. Um, how, how, how odd or how afraid he was, like clearly he was afraid when he dreamed the dream, but after the interpretation, like to, he, he doesn't seem to take the lesson of the dream, let's put it that way. And instead, he sets up an image um, it, that's clearly in opposition to God. And again, as we talked about, you know, um, last week, uh, Dave Babbitt, you know, talked about how the, you know, the, the materials and the ordering of the kingdoms and, and the uh, dream that Nebuchadnezzar had was symbolic. And as we think about why Babylon was the golden head, why it was the top, I, I, I thought about it afterwards. Um, it's part of the reason it's on top because Babylon is the epitome of kingdom opposition to God. Um, I mean, think of the, how... The New Testament uses Babylon. Babylon is the, the kingdom of Babylon is the antithesis of the kingdom of God. It is set in opposition to the kingdom of God. And that's what King Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. He's setting up an image of, again, 
we don't know what, but an image that's symbolic of his power. It's his image that he's created and established. And he's going to make all the peoples, nations, languages fall down before it. Um, and he's trying to declare in this, this way, um, you know, he wants to be, the worship of him to be universal, just as God, the worship of God, the God of Israel, is to be universal. Um, and so he's setting himself up in this position of supremacy, and even supremacy over the God of Israel. So the, this image and the kingdom, <clears throat> the king of Babylon and the kingdom of Babylon that it represents is this you know, worship of, of the created rather than worship of the creator. And it's seeking to draw all the worshipers of the creator away from true worship into idolatry, which is what the kingdom of ba epitomizes the kingdom of Babylon. Yeah, <laughs> and it's his his opposition that maybe you're you know the God of can reveal great tricks, but I still have power over you. I'm superior to your God because your lives are in my hands. So um, it's very clearly being set up as the king's opposition to the God of Israel. Victor, yeah, Drew. Yeah, it's and it's again the way that um, the 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 way the New Testament uses the the kingdom of Babylon is that thing worship of something else other than the God. It's not just a physical kingdom power over humanity; it's a physical power that sets itself in opposition to the true worship of God. And sometimes, like in this. It does it by coercion, like, you know, worship or die. And other times, as we saw in, in chapter one, it's more kind of that worship or, you know, trying to get them to compromise. You know, it's not uh, coerced um, in the sense, like, if you don't eat this food, you die. That wasn't the thing. But um, they're trying to lure them in. And so, and it's both methods, and that's why um, it, it's so um, relevant for us to think about, like, this is what we're being prepared for through the Bible, is to combat that kingdom and to trust in the kingdom, like, um, and not to be lured away into idolatry. I mean, he certainly what he 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 certainly doesn't see this as being a god of power because, as Bill quoted, you know, the end of verse fifteen, what God can deliver you from my hand? So, and you know, um, we kind of got this image last time with his uh, or 
in the last chapter with his, um, uh, you know, all his soothsayers, like, the gods are mute, like, you know, you know, only the god could tell what, tell you what their dreams are, and they're not talking. <laughs> so there's this idea, like, at the end of the day, that they have gods that they worship, but they don't really think they're very, all that powerful. Um, and certainly not powerful enough to deliver them from a fiery furnace. Right? <laughs> well, well, we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get to where, what, what, uh, what Nebuchadnezzar, because, you know, as we, we're really giving, being given in these first four chapters this kind of trajectory of Nebuchadnezzar. And every week we kind of get a new facet of his character. So last week, you know, he acknowledges God is a revealer of mysteries. And yeah, your God knows stuff. Um, and this week it's your God can do stuff. <laughs> um, like, so we, we kind of, you know, it's a different thing to say, yeah, he, he's got some knowledge. And, you know, that was a pretty good trick telling me what my dream meant and what's going to happen in the future. Um, but he, he clearly, in the beginning part of chapter 3, doesn't think that their God has power uh, over other gods. Tim. Yeah, that that this you know it's not just one man and one plane. Like this is the the kingdom of Babylon represents that that opposition to the kingdom of God um, that seeks to lead us away from the true worship of God to worship the created. The you know that's and that's what idol worship is. It's worshiping the things rather than the the creator of those things. Um, and that's our you know uh, Calvin has this great line that, like, the human heart is an idol factory. <laughs> like, that's what we, you know, in our sin, that's what we do. We create idols for ourselves. Um, we try to create, um, you know, uphold uh, things that, um, or set up things just the way Nebuchadnezzar has set up this image and divert the worship that belongs only to God, to the created. Yeah, Chris. God of these people that I just want to worship, the God who reveals 
Absolutely. And, uh, and as you say, like, you know, chapter one, he's taking Israel's God stuff and putting it in the temples of his God. Like, you know, so, you know, again, showing what you're saying, that, that um, he thinks it's a regional God, a God of na a, a nation, and he's going to learn he's the God of the nation, <laughs> all nations, all peoples. And, I, and it really struck me, like, this language um, of of you know the totality he wants to have in this that it's all peoples nations languages need to fall down before this like again it's that clear sense of trying to put um, the image that he's created on a par with God's um, yeah Victor oh Yeah, the irony in this chapter, like, is, and it was the last chapter too, like, you know, every chapter, you know, somebody sets out to do something and the complete opposite ends up happening. So here, like, you know, Nebuchadnezzar sets up an, an image that's supposed to demonstrate his supremacy, his power, his command, and, and, um, uh, the, his receiving of worship of all peoples and languages. And it ends with him declaring <laughs> that, you know, God is supreme. Like, you know, so he sets out with one intention and God brings them to the complete opposite. <laughs> uh, and has, you know, from his own lips, you know, acknowledging the supremacy of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, so the irony is, yeah, God's um, humor <laughs> in this is is awesome. Yeah, and both times, in both two and three, like, the intention has been to destroy them, like, you know, to kill them. Daniel and his friends were on, you know, they, they got that blanket death penalty that all the wise men uh, were under, and, and they end up getting promoted. And here they are under the death sentence again, and they end up getting promoted. <laughs> um, so, like, he threatens death, in, and in both times, like, you have this intense, um, uh, both chapters kind of describe the urgent fury of Nebuchadnezzar. Like, um, he, he goes into a rage in both chapters and makes these rash 
decorations and and wants them urgently done. Like um, last time, like Daniel's, you know, that great line he had to the priest, like, uh, why is the decree of the king so urgent? <laughs> and here, like, we have that urgency, that word comes up again. Um, and then both times, the king ends up, um, upon reflection, <laughs> doing something very different than in his urgent rage he set out to do. Yeah, Ron. Um, that's a good question. If he, let's see, how does he phrase it? Um, I mean, yeah, clearly he, he calls it, call, so he calls them the servants of the Most High God. Um, and to Daniel, he said, truly your God is God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries. So it's, yeah, I mean, clearly he knows that because he knows they're both of the nation of Jews because, um, you know, they're named, they're accused as Jews. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. So my sense is yes, he, he knows. But he does link them, yes. He, he doesn't refer to the God of Israel. He refers it to the God of the particular men. But he knows these men are all Jews. That it's one God. Yep. Um, all right. Well, let's um, uh, let's talk a little bit. Um, man, this class is going by like so super fast. Um, I've got to skip my question about. Uh, I, I just love the conniving Chaldeans, <laughs> maliciously accusing them. Kind of reflect what we saw last or said some last week about court politics. Um, and I love how they. You know, these guys that you <laughs> put in positions, like, so it's, you know, kind of like, Nebuchadnezzar, what are you doing? Um, but, but let's focus on um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's um, response to the king. So, um, so verses 16 through 18. So Nebuchadnezzar, the, the accusation's been made. He's brought them into uh, his presence. They're given an opportunity to um, do what's been required of them, which at the sound of <clears throat> this symphony of instruments, and I, again, the things that get repeated, and I don't know what some of these instruments are. I didn't know they had bagpipes in Babylon. <laughs> um, uh, but at, at the sound, you know, and at hearing this noise, once again, they're, they're going to be given the opportunity um, to recant. Um, to save their lives by doing this simple thing of bowing down. Um, so, yeah, what do we learn about um, faith and the exercise of faith from these three Israelites' response to this confrontation? They're very bold, in their, They're very bold <laughs> in their God. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like, you know... Um, uh, and, and it's in their God. Like, I, I, I love it. Even if, you know, if not, even if God, you know, first of all, they contradict what he says. He said, who's the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And, and they say, the God we serve is able to do that. <laughs> he is able. But even if he doesn't actually do it in this situation, uh, we're still not, you know, bowing the knee. So it's, it's, their trust is in, their boldness is in 
in that God, not in their expectation that God's going to act a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> even if we, yeah, even if we're toasted, he, he, he may not deliver us from the fiery furnace, but he's going to deliver us from you. <laughs> um, and again, like, it's, it's this God who, who saves. Um, and their trust is in that uh, deliverance. Um, whether it's physical deliverance from this fiery furnace, but it's definitely going to be deliverance from the king of Babylon and all that that king of Babylon represents. Yeah, and I like how you say they're prepared for this moment. Because, I mean, think back to chapter 1. In chapter 1, it's, it's not this... In chapter 1, they're, they're acting in faith as teenagers in these kind of um, lower-cost uh, threshold moments. Like, they're exercising faithfulness in, in a smaller matter um, compared to this. Um, and that one seemed to be more kind of private act of faith, whereas this one is very public. Um, and there is a connection between those two things, like um, that need to, to live a life faithfully every day in the small things. Um, and that helps gird you and prepare you for when you have to exercise faith in the big things, um, and and this is a big, mo big test. But it's it's the product, probably of you know count. I mean, think they've been living. We don't know. Uh, this chapter doesn't give us a date stamp like the prior chapters have done. So we don't know how old they are at this point, or how long they've been living in Babylon. But it's at least three years, at the very least. Um, and so think of how many times. They have been um, probably subjected to some kind of invitation to worship false gods. Um, how many times they've been subjected to temptation to eat food sacrificed to idols that's ritually uh, impure? How many times they've probably faced day-to-day -day, um, um, attempt or day-to-day threats to compromise. Um, and now this is a big one. <laughs> this is a public one. But it's, it's, it, it bears the fruit of all that prior faithfulness and God's faithfulness to them, like that he continues to be with them. And, and that is, like, if we think about what's the big message, for, you know, from a faith perspective, that God is with them. Um, just as he's promised them. Um, you can't help reading these, these chapters, or this chapter, and not think of Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. 
because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. And it's that promise, I am with you, that we see being presented in, in this chapter the, the, in a very dramatic, visible way, the protecting presence of Almighty God. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, uh, we, we're not uh, made of asbestos <laughs> um, or we don't, haven't figured out the secret of, um, uh, you know, uh, um, fire retardant clothing. Like, you know, it's the God will deliver. We serve a God who is able to deliver us. And it's, and it's very clear that, like, all this stuff about, like, not a hair was singed. They don't even smell a fire. Like, the fire hasn't touched them at all. Um, it's clearly miraculous. Like, there's, there's no denying. And it's not just the king that recognizes it, notices it. You know, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's uh, commanders are all gathering around and ins inspecting them, uh, looking at them, touching them, smelling them. <laughs> and there is no trace of fire on them. I remember when Dana and I were shopping for a house um, when we were living in North Carolina, um, you know, when you walk into a house uh, and it's all nice and neatly painted and everything, but you walk in, you could tell this house has had a fire. <laughs> the smell, like permeate, like it looked all super. I'm sure they did a great job rebuilding it, but it's that you know smell of fire from however long ago, still hung in the air. Like and and there's no trace of that on them. Um, and clearly a sign of God's sovereign protecting power. Teresa. So, um, so, yeah, we don't know who this fourth man is. He has the... He has the appearance like the Son of God. Some people would might say that it's an angel. That's who Nebuchadnezzar seems to think it was. Um, you know, he says, uh, you know, um, uh, oh, where is it? Um, yeah, um, blessed be the God, verse 28, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel. Um, other people say this is a theophany. You know, it's a physical um, appearance of God, um, kind of like, you know, the pillar of fire by, by night, cloud by day, that is, you know, a symbolic appearance of God. Other people might say it's a pre-incarnate Christ. I'm not going to blow your minds real quick, but, um, you know, if uh, the eternal God takes on human flesh, according to Calvin, the properties of God infused as that human flesh, so it's no longer bound by space and time. <laughs> um, so yes, ruminate on that one for a while. Um, yeah, I can't. Like, yeah, Calvin like has thinks about the the what it means for the two natures um, to be combined. So we don't know um, exactly what or who this is, but it, it's clearly a visible sign of God's presence. I mean, but we don't have to settle, is it an angel? Is it Jesus? Is it some other, you know, God showing up in a, a physical representation? I, I don't think we have to hammer that home. Uh, what we conclude, no matter what those, which it, option it is, is it's God's visible presence in the furnace with these three men, whether that is by proxy or, you know, God himself physically present somehow. You know, the text doesn't say specifically, but it's someone who has the appearance of the Son of God or a Son of God's 
um, and Nebuchadnezzar calls it an angel. Um, so it's being understood that God is present with them, protecting them at this moment. Yeah, clearly he doesn't understand what he's seeing, <laughs> which, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll empathize with Nebuchadnezzar at this point. Like, I wouldn't know what I was seeing. <laughs> yeah, because something about his appearance is unlike, he looks like a man, but something about his appearance clearly sets him apart from these other three men that he's thrown into the furnace, and like, this furnace that's heated seven times hotter, so hot that the people that take um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to throw them in are consumed by it. Um, and yet these three guys aren't. And this fourth person is there with them. Um, and, you know, and is, is seen. Um, and it's this visible sign of God's presence with these three men in the midst of this burning, fiery furnace. I, I, again, it's the way the Hebrew doubles the words. It's not just a fiery furnace. It's a burning, fiery furnace. <laughs> like, uh, um, you know, it's, it, this is clearly something unique is going on. And I love, John, what, how you just contrasted. Like, they're looking at things from this eternal perspective, whereas the, the emphasis from the, out, from the you know, Babylonians is the now, like the urgency. And what's urgent for them isn't this moment. The urgency for them is the you know, fidelity to, to this everlasting eternal God. You know, and I think that's a great takeaway, you know, as we think about, you know, the various applications. Like, I mean, think of all the day-to-day -day things that present themselves as a suggest succession of urgent things. Um, and we can get so wrapped up uh, in that, you know. Um, uh, there's a tract that I remember from college. I think it was something Campus Crusade distributed, but it was called the tyranny of the urgent. Like and and you know, I I at least feel that kind of oppressive like, you know, to to focus on the now, whereas their focus is on God. <laughs> their focus is on the eternal, the the unchanging, the everlasting, um, you know, the one who is made time and is beyond time, not on this particular moment in time. Like, whether we live now, that doesn't matter compared to our obedience to God. That takes precedence even over life now. Um, and it's like that line that, that Job has, you know, though he slay me, I will trust in him still. Like, it's that 
that kind of perspective that there's displaying here. All right, we're at time, but uh, just quickly, um, so um, Nebuchadnezzar's reaction, <laughs> uh, we've talked some about it. Um, clearly, uh, he's, he's pretty, uh, pretty impressed. Um, yeah, so, you know, what, what God, <laughs> uh, you know, no other God is able to rescue in this way, um, which, uh, again, the kind of irony he's declared earlier, who's the God who will deliver you from my hands? <laughs> the implied answer to that first question was no one, and then he finds out, oh, there is someone. <laughs> there is an answer to my, uh, to my question that wasn't meant to be answered. Um, you know, he, he asks the question with this implied no, um, and he gets a very different answer. Well, who is the God? Well, it's the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, who's able to do this, and no other. Um, and he himself uh, recognizes that fact. Yeah, Tim. Yeah, and again, the opposite of the intention this chapter set out uh, to demonstrate. Like, it set out to demonstrate the power of Nebuchadnezzar's words. That, you know, or even to, to set up an image that when the symphony plays, everybody bows down. Like, his will is supreme. And, and now he sees his will is not supreme. <laughs> Um, that there is a power that can frustrate the words of the king, that his sovereignty isn't as all-powerful and universal as he wanted to project in the chapter's beginning. It's the, you know, it's, he's learning the complete opposite, um, uh, or the, the lesson he learns completely is, opposes what he set out to do at the beginning of the chapter <laughs> by making this symbol to um, uh, represent his universal supremacy. And, and now he, he's saying there's someone else um, that's universally supreme. Yeah, that's not the, uh, uh, that, yeah, that wasn't what they set out to do. He is nuts, <laughs> which is a nice uh, segue to next chapter when he, he literally does go nuts. Um, uh, but, but yeah, he, he's still, like, he, he's making these dramatic proclamations, but there's still these clear signs that he doesn't get it. Like, you know, the, if he truly understands the God of, of Israel, like he would, rather than punishing the people who speak things against them, he would be doing something to encourage people to worship that God. Um, like, um, and he, he would be seeking to worship that God himself, which we don't see him doing. So um, again, it's another sign that sometimes people can recognize true things about God, but um, there's a difference between acknowledging something with your head and believing it in your heart. Um, the way uh, Jonathan Edwards used to say, you, you know, you can know all about the physical properties of honey, um, uh, but you don't know honey till you've tasted it. Like, um, and it's the same thing. You can know all kinds of things about God, but you don't know God until you've had that experience of, of God's um, um, spirit and, and uh, grace um, poured out into your heart. All right, well, we're at time, so uh, let me close this in prayer, um, and we'll take up uh, the question of, of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, sanity or lack thereof next time. 
Uh, let's pray. Gracious God, truly, um, you are the one that all nations and peoples and languages should bow down to and worship. Um, and we thank you that you, uh, through your uh, sovereign work of grace in saving us, um, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, that uh, you delivered us and that uh, you continue uh, to deliver us from the evil one who seeks to take our life. And uh, we thank you that you are uh, the God who saves. Um, and we thank you for uh, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has um, uh, done uh, what we see done in this fiery furnace, that he um, came and lived with and among his people, um, suffering the things that they suffer. Uh, though he knew no sin, that he took the sin and punishment and judgment of uh, your justice upon himself to give us life. Truly, he is Emmanuel, God with us, and he is the God who we come to worship now in this coming hour. Uh, give us uh, uh, humble hearts to acknowledge um, our sinfulness and our need for a Savior as we uh, praise our Savior by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> 